you would take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. We'll be reading the chapter in its entirety, 31 verses. Genesis chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light, and God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also, and God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and the beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning 
were the sixth day. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, you can see that we have undertaken a new sermon series from the book of Genesis. I hope to move through this at the pace more or less of one chapter each week. We just concluded a series through 2 Timothy, and we looked at about two or three verses each week. If we did that in Genesis, it would take us a decade to get through the book. Uh, Going at a chapter a week, it will take us a year. Uh, So that is the plan. Uh, The book starts at the very beginning. It is a book of beginnings, and it, it begins with these words, in the beginning, God created. And so history begins. Now, this one statement, in the beginning, God created, is one of the most important statements in the whole of Scripture. It's also one of the most controversial statements in the whole of Scripture. And I would argue it is the most foundational statement in all of Scripture. And this is because, as it says in the book of Hebrews, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Well, Genesis, right here in the very first verse, establishes that God is. And what's more, it establishes that he is the creator altogether holy, distinct, and separate from that which has been made. Notice that it says, in the beginning, God created. The beginning is the moment when time began. We often forget that God created time along with the rest of creation. Time had a beginning. God is not subject to time. He's not a created being. Time is a created thing. And this is what it means that God is eternal. He is outside of time. It doesn't mean when we say that God is eternal that he is everlasting, although he is that too from the perspective of those who are in time. But God is eternal. He is not subject to the flow of time. Herman Bavink, the Dutch theologian, comments and says, time is the necessary form of the existence of of the finite. It is not a separate creation, but something automatically given with the world, co-created with it like space. In a sense, therefore, the world has always existed as long as time has existed. All change then occurs in it, not in God. The world is subject to time, that is, to change. It is constantly becoming in contrast with God, who is an eternal and unchangeable being. God created time along with space and matter. The creation is subject to change over the course of time. God himself is not because he is unchanging and eternal. And he created all of this, time, space, and matter, out of nothing, Now, this is the classic doctrine known by its Latin expression, ex nihilo, which literally means out of nothing. So when we speak of creation ex nihilo, what we mean is that God did not shape the cosmos out of pre-existing material. Before the beginning, there was God, and then he created. 
Bavink again says, and by creation is meant that act of God through which, by his sovereign will, he brought the entire world out of non-being into a being that is distinct from his own being. So out of non-being, God brought everything that exists other than himself into being, and that being is distinct from God's own being. So from the very first verse of the Bible, God is presented to us as altogether holy and distinct from that which has been made. Now this sets Christianity apart from paganism, ancient and modern. Paganism would posit that God is part of creation or that creation is part of God or that all matter that exists is God. But here at the start, we're told in the scriptures that God is distinct and unique. Everything else that exists exists because God brought it into an existence by the act of creation. God, though, simply is. His existence is assumed He has his being in himself, the scriptures teach us. Pastor Richard Barcelos in his excellent book, Trinity and Creation, says this, whatever exists other than God is not God and has come into existence because of God. Creation ex nihilo is an introduction by God of being different from God. So this distinction between God and everything else, which is not God, which has been made. This, this distinction is critical. It is foundational to our understanding of God and of ourselves as his beings. But the text then continues, and it says, in the beginning, God created. Well, what did he create? Well, verse 1 tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what does that include? Or is there anything that is excluded from that? The heavens and the earth. Listen to this explanation from Colossians chapter 1. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Now, there are many other passages of Scripture which similarly speak of God's having created all things, both material things things of this material universe, time, space, and matter, but also immaterial things such as angels, spiritual beings, principalities, and powers. Everything that is not God was created by God in the beginning. Verse 2 then continues, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, some, in an attempt to uh, shoehorn modern theories of the age of the earth into the scriptures, see a gap between verses 1 and 2 of untold millions or billions of years. They theorize that God created everything in verse 1, and it would have been perfect and beautiful and lovely, and that something cataclysmic happened to wreck the creation, and they usually attribute that to the fall of Satan. And then beginning in verse 2, God surveys the damage. And then in verse 3, he begins the act of remaking everything. There are many problems with this idea. Chief among them are that the scriptures don't teach this idea anywhere. 
It's merely conjecture meant to incorporate secular ideas concerning the age of the earth into their reading of Genesis. But secondly, the scriptures are clear that the creation which God has made was subject to corruption and death because of Adam's sin. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. It wasn't through Satan's sin that death entered the world. It was through Adam's sin. There's no mention of death in the world before Adam. The doctor of the English Reformation, Puritan pastor and theologian John Owen, notes that chapter 2, verse 1 mitigates against any kind of theory of a gap between verses 1 and 2 in chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 reads like this, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. So at the end of the seven days or six days of creation, it's finished. It wasn't finished at the end of verse 1 and then remade. It was finished at the end of the six days. So on the basis of the clear teaching of Scripture, we reject this so-called gap theory. We hold that verse 2 is a natural continuation of verse 1. Another important point raised by Owen from verse 2 is the work of the Trinity in the creation. The Father wills creation by His limitless power. The Son, or the Word, as we shall see, is the active maker of all things. But the Holy Spirit superintends the work of creation and preserves that which has been made. Owen writes and says, This, therefore, was the work of the Holy Spirit of God in reference unto the earth and the host thereof, the whole matter being created, out of which living creatures were to be adduced, and of which they were to be made. He takes it upon him, the cherishing and preservation of it, that as it had its subsistence by the power of the word of God, it might be carried on towards that form, order, beauty, and perfection that it was designed unto. So Owen says the Father wills creation, the Son, the Word, accomplishes creation, and the Spirit superintends, preserves, and adorns the creation. But we have to be careful when we begin to speak of the role of the Trinity in creation, not to distinguish and separate them too far. So again, Bavink comments, and he says, While there is cooperation, there is no division of labor. All things originate simultaneously from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. The Father is the first cause. The initiative for creation proceeds from Him. Accordingly, in an administrative sense, creation is attributed to Him. The Son is not an instrument but the personal wisdom, the logos, by which everything is created. Everything rests and coheres in him and is created for him, not as its final goal, but as the head and master of all creatures. And the Holy Spirit is the personal, imminent cause by which all things live and move and have their being, receive their own form and configuration, and are led to their destination in God. The creation is a work of the whole Trinity. Now, Bavink goes on to note that all opposition to the Trinitarian work of creation is is proof of deviation in the doctrine of the Trinity. If people get 
God wrong, if they get the doctrine of the Trinity wrong, they will get creation wrong. So God, the creator, in his triunity, brings into existence everything that we know as the universe. And in the rest of the chapter, we're given a brief overview of each of the six days of creation. And these are days as we know them. They're not ages or eons. There's no justifiable biblical ground for interpreting the days of creation as anything other than standard days of more or less 24 hours. Some, again, in an effort to square modern opinions with the biblical account, subscribe to what they call the day-age theory. It suggests that each day described here represents an age of the earth or millions of years in which things slowly took shape. Uh, This is often uh, accompanied by a belief in what they call theistic evolution. But again, the logic just doesn't work. You can't make the idea fit the biblical text, and ultimately, your belief in the inerrancy of Scripture will suffer if you hold such a view. Things which are interdependent, such as plant and animal life, are created on successive days of creation. If there were millions of years in that process, the plants would not survive until the animal life came. They need each other. Plants produce oxygen. Animals breathe oxygen, produce carbon dioxide. They're interdependent. The theory doesn't work scientifically, let alone biblically. So we hold that God created the world in the space of six days, as our confession puts it, and that these days are regular length days. But there's still more to say before we begin to look at the particular actions of each day. As we read through these, we will note some patterns of speech. Now, as we've recently said in our study of 2 Timothy, we hold the scriptures to be God-breathed. That is, they are the very words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the author here, not Moses. The Holy Spirit is working through men to inspire the very words of Scripture. So anytime Scripture repeats a word or a phrase multiple times, especially in close proximity, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not an accident. It's not Moses trying to be poetic. It's the Holy Spirit trying to tell us something. So it should draw our attention. Well, there are seven repeated phrases here in the first chapter of Genesis. This pattern is not identical from one day to the next, but it's very similar, and the differences are noteworthy. Each day begins with the same opening line, Then God said. This is followed by the specific things that he speaks for that particular day, and then is followed by some variation of, And it was so. This repetition is interesting for several reasons. First, it notes the unbounded power of God. He did not labor with back-breaking toil to create. He simply spoke a command. And everything obeyed him. Time, space, and matter obeyed the creator. God wills or speaks And everything that exists apart from God sprang into being at his command. Again, listen to the words of Herman Bavink. Elohim is not presented in Genesis 1 as a cosmic sculptor who in human fashion with pre-existing material produces a work of art, 
but as one who merely by speaking, by uttering a word of power, calls all things into being. And with that view, the whole of Scripture chimes in. God is the Almighty, who is infinitely higher than all creatures, and who deals with his creatures in accordance with his sovereign good pleasure. He is the absolute owner of heaven and earth who does whatever he pleases and to whose power there is no limit. He speaks and his creation obeys. And it is the Son who is described for us as the Word of God. Is it any wonder then when we turn to the Gospels, Jesus stands in a boat in the midst of the Sea of Galilee in a raging storm and commands it to be still and it obeys? Well, of course it obeys. He's the creator. Is it any wonder that Jesus stands in the midst of a crowd of thousands and teaches them, and the crowd is awed? He teaches as one who has authority. Of course he has authority. He's the creator. He has all authority. How could he not teach with authority? God speaks and things happen. Things come to be. His creation obeys his voice. That's the first interesting thing about this pattern, the unimaginable power of the word of God. God said, and it was so. The second interesting thing about the pattern are the deviations from it, specifically on days three and six, which we'll get to in a few moments. But there are six days of creative activity, and each day begins with, then God said, and each day also ends with a pattern of words. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And that same phrase with a different number, obviously, is repeated at the end of each day. Now, this pattern makes clear that these are days, again, not ages or eons. Each day has an evening and a morning. What God did in verse 1, creation ex nihilo, was to bring time, space, and matter into being, into existence. And then he begins the work of shaping and transforming that matter into the universe and the world as we know it. And that happens in time, beginning with a period of darkness followed by a period of light. The evening and the morning were each day. So the pattern is, then God said, and it was so. And then the narrative closes with, so the evening and the morning were the first day. And this pattern holds true for all six days with the inclusion of some other repeated phrases that we'll get to. So let's work our way through each of these six days of creation, noting the similarities and the differences. And noting also, because we've stressed this over and over again, that all of the scriptures point us towards Christ. So how does the creation narrative, the history of the creation of the world, point us towards the creator, towards the redeemer of our souls? Well, let's begin with day one, found in verses three through five. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So here we see our pattern, God speaking, what he speaks comes to be, and there was evening and morning one day. On day one, what God speaks into existence is light. Maybe not all of us, but some of us have trouble putting our shoes on in the dark. God brought into being 
everything that exists. And he did it in the dark. Another testament, the transcendent power and glory of the creator. God is not a man that he needs physical light to work by. But on day one, God simply speaks, and there was light, and it was so. And now we're introduced to another repeated phrase here in verse 4. And God saw the light that it was good. The things that God makes are good things. They're pleasing to him, and they make the earth a fit home for mankind. This phrase will be repeated on each of the six days with one notable exception. Another repeated phrase or concept is introduced in the last half of verse 4. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. A great part of the work of creation, as we'll see from one day to the next, is God dividing one thing from another, distinguishing between things. Here he divides light from darkness. Now, of course, this should put us in mind of the first chapter of John's gospel, where he writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus is the light and life of men. So in Genesis, when God speaks, we are reminded of Christ, who is the Word of God made flesh. And on the first day, God speaks and brings forth light. And we are reminded that Jesus is the light of men. Later in John's Gospel, he calls himself the light of the world. And the light is divided or set apart from the darkness. It's holy and good just as Christ is set apart wholly unto the Lord as the light of the world and the word of God. So even here on day one of creation, the scriptures are already speaking of Christ in types and shadows, pointing the way forward to he who is the central theme of all the scriptures. In verse five, now we're introduced to another recurring phrase. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it is found only in the first three days of creation and notably absent from the final three. The reason, which won't be explained until we get to chapter two, but I'll give you a little preview. God names the day and the night. He calls, he divides the light from the darkness and he names them. He calls them the day and the night. He will name other geographical and climate-related aspects of the creation on days two and three. But he doesn't name the animals and the plants. He leaves that work to Adam in chapter two, which we will get to next week, Lord willing. But by naming these things, God is demonstrating his authority over them. And then the day comes to a close. The evening and the morning were the first day. The history of day two is then related in verses five or six through eight. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Now here once again we see God speaking 
And we see that his word accomplishes its purposes with this phrase that will be repeated on each day now, and it was so. The exact phrase is not found in day one, but uh, it's replaced by the more specific, and there was light. But on day two, God creates firmament, that is the atmosphere or the sky. And once again, this is an act of division. The firmament divides the waters. Some are above the firmament, some are below. Now, there are many theories concerning the water above the firmament. It was likely some form of water vapor that surrounded the earth, protecting it from ultraviolet radiation, enabling longer life, more temperate climate, gentle weather patterns, and other beneficial results. And once again, God names his work. He calls the firmament heaven. Now, this is not to be confused with the heavens that are the abode of the stars, nor with heaven that is the throne of God. Heaven, in this case, is used in reference to the atmosphere or the sky surrounding the earth. And once again, the day is noted as evening and morning. What is noticeably absent here from day two is the phrase repeated on every other day, and God saw that it was good. It's not there. Day two is the only day that does not receive this divine approval. Now, there are many theories why that is the case, but I find two of them that actually work together to be the most compelling. First, the water separated and stored above the firmament will later be brought to the earth in judgment during the global flood in chapter 7 where it says the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So God put the water above the firmament, storing it away for a day that he knew he would use it to judge the sins of mankind. And because this water was reserved for judgment in the day of wrath, this is not called good. Second, this foreshadows for us another day of wrath to come in the New Testament. On day two, the firmament is made. The sky, which divides the waters above and below, reserving those above for judgment. As a type and shadow, this points the way to Christ, who is lifted up on the cross to hang between heaven and earth, to suffer judgment from above in our place, and to divide the peoples from one another. As the atmosphere divided the water, so Christ divides those who believe and trust in him from those who reject him. This is pictured for us at the crucifixion by the two thieves, one on each side of Christ. One comes to repentance and belief, and one reviles till the moment of death. And they are divided, separated from one another by Christ. In his commentary on this passage, Arthur Pink offers four typological agreements that we don't have time to get into between the firmament and the cross, but he concludes with this. The second day's work pointed forward to the cross, and at the cross, God was dealing with sin. There, his wrath was being expended on the just one who was dying for the unjust. Though he was without any sin, yet he was made sin for us and dealt with accordingly. Does not then the omission here of the usual expression, God saw that it was good, assume a deeper significance? And so, once again, creation points the way forward to Christ and his work of redemption. Day three is then recorded in verses 9 through 13. 
Day three is a little different. It breaks the pattern in the opposite way that day two did. First, in verses 9 and 10, we read this. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So the waters under the firmament are gathered into seas and dry land appears. They are divided from one another. So our pattern is followed. Then God said, and it was so. Things are divided. God calls and God sees that it was good. It's all there. While it doesn't explicitly speak of that dividing, it obviously happens. But then something strange happens. Instead of the expected the evening and the morning statement, we get a second, then God said, in verse 11. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Now the dry land which God separated from the sea is not left unclothed. He covers it with vegetation. And here we have the introduction of another repeated phrase, according to its kind. Those things that are living produce more of the same. Each produces according to its own kind, the kind of thing that it is. This is an important principle that, first of all, negates any kind of evolutionary theory, secular or theistic. The scriptures plainly say that God did not use evolution. One thing does not produce another kind of thing, but more of the same kind of thing. Secondly, this principle, which is a creation principle, is found in more than just our biology Christ uses this as a metaphor for the products of our inner selves, of our hearts. Speaking of men, he says, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Thistles produce thistles, not figs. This creation principle points to a greater reality then that out of the heart proceeds either good or evil. And what is produced tells you the nature of the heart. And once again, this work of creation points us towards Christ. On the day that dry land is brought forth from beneath the waters and clothed with vegetation, abundant plant life, we see a picture of Christ's resurrection, which is the promise of our own. And it's signified... In baptism, we are buried in the waters of baptism and raised to new life in him. And this happens not on day two, not on day four, but on day three, just as Christ was resurrected on the third day. When Paul summarizes the gospel for the church in Corinth, he says this, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. According to which scriptures? 
Which scriptures tell us that Christ would rise again on the third day? Well, my Bible, that phrase in Corinthians, the very first cross-reference it gives is Genesis 1, 9-13. The third day of creation where the land is raised out of the water and clothed with new life. What a beautiful tapestry of types and metaphors that the Holy Spirit wove into the very creation of the world to point us towards Christ. And while day two pictured judgment and the death of Christ and received no divine approval, day three receives it twice. First, the dry land rises from the sea, and second, the growth upon that land of new life, and God saw that it was good. And the day closes with evening and morning. Day four then begins again with God speaking in verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. This day's work brings to a completion the work of day one. On day one, God created light. On day four, God creates lights, light givers. The celestial bodies that we know as the sun, the moon, and the stars. These celestial bodies serve two purposes, according to the text. First, they serve the purpose of day one by marking the distinction, dividing between day and night. The greater light, the sun, ruling over the day. The lesser light, or the moon, ruling over the night. Their secondary purpose is to mark the passage of time. They are to be for signs and seasons and for days and years. It's incredible that God not only created these bodies in the heavens to provide life-giving light on the earth, but he also tasked them to serve those who dwell on the earth as a sort of cosmic timepiece. What amazing creativity and wisdom that God would provide light and in doing so would also allow us to measure the passage of time. And our pattern is again present with the inclusion of the phrase, and it was so, at the end of verse 15. And so God did what he had spoken. He made the sun, the moon, and the stars, ordained their pathways through the cosmos to serve as this cosmic timepiece and to provide light and warmth on the earth. And he saw that it was good. And the day ends with the evening and the morning as the others have. Day four, again, points us toward Christ and his redemption by typifying the final act of his first advent, his ascension into heaven. On day one, we're introduced to the light who is Christ. On days two and three, our attention is focused on his work in the world. But day four now draws our attention upward once again, where Christ has entered, according to Hebrews, into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ, after the resurrection, ascended into heaven to take his place at the right hand of power on high. For the previous two days, our attention was focused on the earth beneath, 
But now day four says to us, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The history of day four speaks of the greater light and the lesser light. The greater light is the sun. The prophet Malachi speaks of Christ as the son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings. While Christ calls himself the light of the world in John, he also calls his people, his church, the light of the world in Matthew chapter 5. So just like the moon is a lesser light which reflects the light of the sun, so we, as Christ's people, made new in his image and likeness, reflect his light in the world. The lights that God made on day four were to provide light to the world and to rule. So also Christ and his church are the light of the world, but in the coming day of his kingdom, we will rule with him, as we saw in 2 Timothy 2.12. So the work of creation continues to direct our thoughts to the word of God, who is Christ Day 5 then recounts the making of the fish and the birds, verses 20 through 23. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Once again, the word of God goes forth. Creation obeys its master. An abundance of life springs into being in the seas below and in the skies above. And once again, we see a pattern. Just as day four completed the work of day one, So day five completes the work of day two. On day one, God made light, divided the light and the darkness. On day four, God made lights to provide that light continually and to fill the void of the darkness of space. On day two, God separated the waters below and above by means of the atmosphere. Now on day four, God fills the waters below and the seas with fish and the sky above with birds. And once again, we see the repetition of this creation principle of reproduction according to their kind. And once again, God sees that it is good. But then something new happens in verse 22, and God blessed them. The first blessing in the scriptures is pronounced upon the first animals, that life which has blood in it, which we know is significant. This is unique so far among the days of creation. And God doesn't bless them in the sense of just wishing them well. God wishes them luck in reproducing, multiplying. No, his word accomplishes its purposes. As Matthew Henry comments, the power of God's providence preserves all things as at first his creating power produced them. Fruitfulness is the effect of God's blessing and must be ascribed to it. The multiplying of the fish and fowl from year to year is still the fruit of this blessing. And the introduction of this blessing of abundant life 
once again draws our attention to the words that Christ spoke during his earthly ministry. In John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Indeed, just as the blessing of God upon the fish of the sea and the birds of the air continues to produce abundant life year after year, so also the blessing of Christ produces in us life everlasting. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And now we arrive at day six. Now day six is unique among the days for several reasons. It begins, as they all do, with the word of God going forth in verses 24 and 25. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So God speaks, it was so according to its kind, and it was good. So the pattern holds. But then, in verse 26 and 27, we read this, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So a second time, God spoke. We've seen this before on day three. So just as day four related to day one, day five related to day two, day six relates to day three. On day three, there were two uses of then God said, and the second one brought forth the first living things. On day six, the second use of then God said brings forth a new kind of living thing one that is made in the image and the likeness of God. And just as the celestial bodies created on day four were to rule over the day and the night, so also this new creature called man was to rule and have dominion over the other creatures. And once again, then, we have a blessing spoken in verse 26, then God, or in verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And this is sometimes called the creation mandate. And just like the blessing spoken over the fish and the birds, this blessing accomplishes what it states. For man has been fruitful in abundance and does have dominion over the other creatures. But then day six continues in verse 29. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. Now this is meant to grab our attention. Anytime this well-established pattern is modified or broken in some way, we're meant to notice And the pattern here is repeated a third time. Only on day six, when man is created, does God speak three times. And on this third speaking, God sees to the care and feeding of man and his other creatures. He gives the vegetation created on day three to be the food for those who were created on day six. Of course, here on day six, we also have God speaking to himself 
The Trinity is glimpsed in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Day six points us towards Christ, who is not only the Son of God and the second person of the Trinity, the active and living Word of God by which creation is accomplished, but He is also the Son of Man, on whom the Father has set His seal. So day six points us towards Christ, who is, in the words of our confession, very God and very man, yet one Christ And so as day six draws to a close in verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Here again, the pattern is altered. Always before, God saw that it was good, but now it is very good. Calvin comments and says, on each of the days, simple approbation was given, but now After the workmanship of the world was complete in all its parts and had received, if I may so speak, the last finishing touch, he pronounces it perfectly good, that we may know that there is in the symmetry of God's works the highest perfection to which nothing can be added. Everything is in its place. The systems of the universe are in harmony. The vegetation produces abundant food. The animal kingdom is teeming with life. The seas, the dry land, and the sky are filled with an abundance of living things. The pinnacle of God's creation is a creature made in his own likeness after his kind, as it were, a spiritual being, which we'll discuss more in chapter 2 next week. But for now, I'll close with these words from Matthew Henry. And now, as God reviewed his work, let us review our meditation upon it. And we shall find them very lame and defective and our praises low and flat. Let us therefore stir up ourselves and all that is within us to worship him that made the heaven, earth, and sea and the fountains of waters according to the tenor of the everlasting gospel which is preached to every nation. All his works in all places of his dominion do bless him. And therefore, bless thou the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray.